All right. We're going to get back into Matthew chapter 7 to the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we should finish that up this month and start into some new territory in the fall. First few verses of Matthew 7, everybody in the whole world's favorite thing that Jesus ever said is this, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So... um, This is, uh, like I said, probably the most quoted, um, at least in part, uh, words of Jesus, I think, in our culture, not just within the church, maybe not within the church, but within our culture. Um, It is the thing that you will hear back almost uh, with certainty anytime uh, you say something that is perceived as judgmental about someone else. Sometimes you maybe need to hear that, and sometimes maybe not. It's become, I think, this sort of weird tug-of-war between the kind of polar extremes of understanding this. And, and these are, I'm, I'm going to give you sort of some somewhat absurd representations of what I think the, the polar opposites of those are. So on one end, uh, we have what I think is the pinnacle of judgment from the church in the world, which are church signs. So here are some really good ones. Uh, if you don't love God, go to hell. Stop, drop, and roll won't work in hell. Listen, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, I'm a writer. I love words. There's nothing that drives me crazier than people that try to get clever uh, with church signs. <clears throat> Tired of being a loser? Turn to God. I'm not even going to comment on that. Compared to Satan, Voldemort is a kitten. And uh, this is my favorite, thou shalt not park here, clergy only. Uh, As a pastor, this is also one of my least favorite things, is reserve parking spots up at the front uh, for the staff. So that's one end. Uh, This is how the church has gained a reputation. This may seem ridiculous and silly because we don't see, if you think these don't exist around town, you're not driving around in the right parts of town. Uh, but we don't see a lot of them anymore, and I think the bulk of the church that most of us have been affiliated with, and, and I think, honestly, most of the culture is connected to, doesn't put up silly church signs like this, right? But this is the sort of extreme example of what the church has come to represent for a lot of people in the culture, a lot of people in the world, um, is this sort of judgmental, if you're not like us, you're going to hell sort of narrative. So that's one end. The other end is this thing that says, because Jesus said, don't judge, because those those words came out of his mouth, it means that anytime anyone says anything that looks like sort of moral discernment or judgment, that I can just hold up that card. It says, Jesus says you can't judge me, right? And so here's the silly sort of other end of that, the hashtag on Twitter, don't judge me. So here's one. Uh, Dad, do you have a picture of an alligator eating a cat on the refrigerator door? And me, who is dad, apparently says, yep, that's how I'm dealing with my cat hate. Don't judge me. 
Here's one that says, I'm laying down and catching Pokemon. Don't judge me. Uh, and some of you are judging them as soon as you saw the Pokemon Go picture, right? Sometimes when I'm sick of doing laundry, I just fold my husband's dirty clothes and put them back. <coughs> Don't judge me. I alternate between two different McDonald's for lunch so the employees don't think I eat there every day. Don't judge me. <laughs> so it's kind of become a hashtag. I mean, this is actually the hashtag, but culturally it's kind of become that kind of thing that we can just throw over whatever it is we're doing and say, you can't judge me because you're not allowed to judge, right? And so what I want us to do in looking here at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 is talk about... Um, what Jesus actually is telling us not to do, what he's actually prohibiting his followers from doing, uh, what he's not prohibiting us from doing, because I think that's part of the full understanding of the meaning of this text. Uh, and then after we look at those kind of two parts of it, I want to talk about what I think is at the heart of what he's saying here, which are some, some sort of virtues, some things he's wanting us to build into our lives that become true of us as his followers. So we'll look at all three of those things. Um, and, and, uh, hey, Aaron, can you jump back to the Matthew 7 text? I meant to copy it in here a second time, and I forgot to do it. So in verses 3 through 5, as we start looking at uh, what he is prohibiting, I want to look back at, at this text just a little bit. Um, here, let me tell you the things that, that I see uh, that he's prohibiting. This is not necessarily a comprehensive list. This, these are just the two things that jump out to me of what Jesus is saying. This is what you shouldn't do. The first is uh, he's, he is speaking against hypocritical judgment and correction, right? Where we go after someone else for something that we're still actively doing ourselves. And I think he includes in that uh, partiality where we judge people more harshly because they aren't like us, because they aren't like our kind. So I think that's the first thing that, that, that he's prohibiting here, is us being hypocritical and partial in, in judging other people. And then the second thing that, that he's prohibiting, regardless, even if we're clear of that first thing, is this sort of loveless condemnation, where we, see, we may legitimately see someone doing something wrong, and our response is not love, and our response is to condemn the person uh, in, in the midst of talking about whatever it is that they're doing. Okay, So the first part of that, I think, is really evident here. If you look at verses uh, 3 through 5, 3 and 4 in particular, Jesus says, Why do you see this, this little speck in your neighbor's eye when you have this giant plank sticking out of yours and you're focused on getting them right before you acknowledge and take care of of what is in your own eye. I think this is really, really clear. He is, uh, and he does this at multiple points in his teaching, and the scriptures as a whole do this regularly, remind us that hypocrisy undoes the virtue of whatever judgment or correction it is that we're going after. So that, that's the first thing. And then if we skip back through all these pictures to Romans 2, where Paul addresses the same issue of judgment, he says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, 
are doing the very same thing. So you have this same concept that Jesus has addressed, which is hypocrisy, which is you condemning someone else. When you condemn someone else for doing something that's true of you, you condemn yourself. It's, it's just that simple. Um, and there, there is, in both of these texts, I think, a, a pretty clear sort of grabbing onto the idea of judging or correcting someone else without humility. I think that's tied into the idea of hypocrisy. So, uh, so, so that's the first thing you get in this Romans 2 text. You go down to verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, or do you, do you despise the riches of his, God's kindness, and forbearance and patience? This is when you're going to, uh, to judge someone else in, in a hypocritical way. Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what happens here in these two verses, I think, are two things. One, Paul says, you who are being a hypocrite, you who are actively walking around with this this board sticking out of your eye looking for what's wrong with other people, um, God has been kind to you, but you still aren't repentant. You're more focused on other people's sin uh, rather than your own. So, so if you're not repentant, what are you doing judging others? And then uh, he also, I think, reminds us that God's model for drawing people to repentance, to change, is not loveless condemnation, but these regular reminders of God's goodness and love. And so he's, I think, changing our mindset about how we go about uh, dealing with one another as as far as this goes. And then verses 6 through 8 and verse 11 say this, For he will repay according to each one's deeds, to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life, while for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury, for God shows no partiality." So there's a reminder here, not a pleasant one, that God will ultimately judge whether we responded to his kindness in our own repentance. Um, he's not going to judge us uh, based on what anyone else did. He's going to judge us based on our own repentance or lack thereof. And that repentance is what transforms our lives from selfishness and evil, um, from continuing on our own way to the life he's me- that we're meant to live. So let me clarify this one thing before we move on from this. Paul couldn't be clearer in his writing, uh, including in this letter to the Romans, that our salvation hinges completely on Jesus. So we all get a little uneasy when he starts talking about judgment. But he's very clear that our salvation is completely dependent on Jesus, not on the sum total of the good and the bad that we do. The message here is not, you better be sure you do enough good that you can stand in the judgment and and not so much bad. The message here is, when you understand your own broken nature and that you need Jesus to be healed from it, your response to the brokenness of others is not superiority and condemnation, but graciously pointing to Jesus again and again. And Jesus is the one who transforms people from their sin into people who love and who live what is good. There's this very sobering reminder that for all of us, it comes back to, can we stand or can we not stand? And that depends on, do I understand my own need for Jesus? And as I look at other people, is that where my attention is turned? To, 
our collective need for Jesus as opposed to my superiority. There's a lot more scripture on this subject of judgment, but between Jesus and Paul here, I think we get a pretty clear understanding that we're in error when we judge people hypocritically without this sober understanding of our own sin. And when we use, anytime I use me as the measure for who someone else should be, and then judge that person for not matching my template, I'm, I'm off. That's the kind of judgment that Jesus is condemning. Um, and anytime I condemn the whole person as though I am God, I'm, I'm off. Um, and I think understanding this is mostly about allowing our heart and our motives to be examined. It's not really a list of, here's things you can do and say to one another, and here's things you can't do and say to one another. Jesus, as always, is trying to cut to the heart of who we are and why we do what we do. So this is just my list um, when I think about myself. This particular sermon was not uh, one of the more enjoyable ones for me to prepare uh, because, like most of us, this can be a challenge for me, and it, it sort of opens me up in some ways that are not altogether pleasant. And so I just kind of made this list um, about my own motives and ways I can know that my judgment in a given moment is unbiblical when it's rooted in these motives. When I'm annoyed by you, so I'm judging you. When I'm angered by you, when I want you to be more like me, when I feel the need to fix you because of what's wrong with you, when it makes me feel good about me to focus on what's wrong with you, <clears throat> and when it helps me avoid focus on what's wrong with me to focus on what's wrong with you. I can make a longer list than this, I assure you, of my broken motives uh, when I find myself judging people. This is, a, this is about all I could bite off at once. <laughs> um, and I may be alone in, in these things, but these are, I think, the kinds of things in my heart that I hear Jesus in these words saying. When this is how you're operating, when this is what motivates you to pay attention and focus and talk about what's wrong with someone else, then you're judging in a way that I've said, don't judge. So there's that. That's not fun. That's not pleasant. And I want us to be sure that we're clear that that's not who we're meant to be. I think there's also this sort of outstanding question of whether what Jesus says here is a prohibition against all the things that cause people to reflexively say, don't judge me or judge not lest you be judged. Um, it is, is what Jesus says here prohibiting us from all of the things that trigger those responses? I don't think so. Um, and I don't think anyone actually wants that to be true. This is sort of like the internal inconsistency of that auto response uh, as, a, as a blanket response to any sort of correction or criticism. Because if that's true, the, the, the most immediate uh, sort of um, inconsistency is uh, when you tell me that I'm wrong for judging, you're judging, right? That I shouldn't be judging. Uh, so even if we consider that, though, like, okay, that's the one exception because we're not supposed to judge, we can call people out uh, when they judge. Um, that way of thinking about judgment renders 
all judgments that we make about what someone says and does, even the really awful stuff, or uh, the things that deeply hurt me or deeply hurt people that love me, as unbiblical. And I don't think any of us actually believe that that's all unbiblical or want it to all be prohibited. So let's talk just a little bit about what Jesus maybe is not prohibiting. Uh, Once again, this isn't a comprehensive list, but these are a few things that I think he's not prohibiting. And then I'll go through and and talk about each one of them just a little bit and look at at what the scriptures have to say about them. Uh, I think he's not prohibiting discernment, uh, number one, that opposes justice. I think he's not prohibiting discernment that corrects our brothers and sisters in Christ with a hope for restoring them to the life that God made them for. And then I think he's not prohibiting um, the kind of discernment that stubbornly points to who Jesus really is and what the gospel truly says and does when that's being distorted. Okay, Uh, The first, like most obvious evidence that that you can't just take these first five verses of chapter 7 and say Jesus is saying it's evil to ever uh, render judgment about other people is the very next verse, the very next thing that comes out of his mouth is do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them underfoot and maul you. This is one of the troubling things that Jesus does is he at times uh, looks around at groups of people and says dogs, swine, Um, And I'm not going to get into that tonight, uh, but there's a judgment being made there about certain groups of people, and there is an admonition to us to be alert to that judgment. Uh, So that's the first, I think, just very obvious. In 1 Corinthians 6, you also have Paul rebuking the church for uh, refusing to make judgments about what's happening among them and sort of leaving it to the Roman Empire judges to settle these disputes. And he says, among other things there, that God's people will judge the world, that God's people will judge even angels. And then he says, you can't find someone in the crowd who can make sound judgments about what's right and wrong among you when this is what the kingdom is going to look like with God's people. So there are these sort of overarching messages that make it clear that I think make it clear that he's not shutting down our capacity for sound judgment, okay? Then on the three specific things uh, that I said, I think he's not prohibiting us from, from exercising judgment in opposition to injustices. In Matthew 23, we'll look at this text a little more broadly in just a minute, but uh, just a snapshot of it right now. Jesus is talking and says, Do not do what they, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus is talking about leaders within his religious culture and movement when he makes this judgment about them and tells his followers, you should make the same judgment. Don't do what they do. Recognize who they are, what they're doing, what's wrong with what they're doing, and don't follow that pattern. In Mark's account of this same, uh, this same event, Jesus says, they devour widows' houses And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. There's a clear judgment that Jesus is making in opposition to cultural, even political injustice around him. And he's he's dragging us all into that. 
He's giving us instruction based on that judgment and asking us to live discerning lives according to it. Okay? The second thing I think he's clearly not prohibiting is a loving correction uh, to restore other believers. In Galatians 6, Paul writes, My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. He's saying, restore, if anyone's found in sin, if anyone is found wandering from my way, from God's way, restore them, lead them back. And he offers a word here on humility along with that. You shouldn't think that you're more than you are, but restore that person in gentleness. You're not better than them. They're just one of you who's wandered away. And I think there's also a word, and this, this will be the last thing I talk about in just a couple of minutes, but there's a word to us here that when we are that wanderer, when we're corrected, to be so in touch with our imperfection that we're not shocked or defensive when a word of questioning or correction comes, okay? In James chapter 5, James writes, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The one who brings back the wanderer, James says, is noble, is, is not a sinner, is not violating what Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, they're actually saving that person from death. The encouragement here, again, in, his, in humility, is to recognize that uh, God is the true judge. That's, that's bound up in all of this, is a way uh, of discerning as God's people that doesn't have us sitting as the judge, but because God is the true judge, urges us uh, to care for one another in this way. And so my role here with, with the one who loves Jesus, who has professed to love Jesus but has wandered, is to call them back in a humble, gracious sort of love. Uh, and to not do that, the, the, the clear implication here of the, these verses is to not do that is to fail to love them enough to try to save them. Um, and then the other side is to, to correct them in arrogance or, or, or without real care that my correction is aimed at restoring them to Jesus is to be a hypocrite, period. So both parts of that are present here. The third thing that I think uh, is not prohibited here um, by Jesus is when we exercise a kind of judgment uh, for the sake of clarity about who Jesus is and the nature of the gospel and the kingdom. Um, and I think this, is, this, is, this has to do with the way that when we look around at other people who are believers or who claim to be believers, people who are saying to the world, this is who God is, this is who Jesus is, this is what it's like. Um, I, don't, I don't think what Jesus says here requires us to just sit on the bench when there is clear distortion to the world around us in, in that message. Uh, look more broadly at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. They're teaching the scriptures. 
But don't do as they do, for they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their <clears throat> phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I, this, I love this because I had to look up. I remember learning it a long time ago, but I had to look up again what phylacteries are. Uh, basically, they're Bible holders. They're leather pouches that they carry around with like important Jewish scriptures written on them. Um, and so the bigger they carry them around, the more Bible they have in their pouch, right? Uh, so this is what these guys do. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. I just can't help but pause here and say the admonition of Jesus is to not follow people like this in the religious culture. And there's a real danger in the broader religious culture. There is a cultural understanding of what the church is that has uh, either placed certain people uh, at the head of that group or has allowed those people to place themselves at the head of that group. And if they're like this, don't follow them. Uh, I'll leave the commentary at that. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross the sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Jesus is publicly rebuking people who claim to speak for God and distort who God is and what his kingdom looks like in the world. Paul does the same kind of thing. There are multiple points in Paul's writing where he openly rebukes someone else who he believes is distorting the gospel. And it's, it's significant enough, his burden to do this when the reputation of Jesus and the gospel are at stake, that it's not just sort of minor players in the New Testament that he does this with. He actually, in the scriptures, calls out and rebukes Peter, where he feels like Peter is a poor witness to the nature of the gospel and where the gospel is at stake. In Galatians chapter 2, Cephas here is Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Just short summary of what's happened here. Uh, Paul is expanding the reach of the gospel beyond just the Jews and says, God loves everybody. This message is now for everyone. And Peter was on board with that. And then at some point when this other group came around that was still insisting that to be saved, to be in with God, you had to follow the Jewish law, including circumcision, Peter got intimidated and began to sort of placate uh, this group. And this, uh, th this is akin to, this is a conversation about race 
in this context. This is Paul saying, God loves everybody and this is for everyone. And Peter, you are cowering to these racists who are coming in and saying, no, it's, it's only these people who, who follow these rules and who, who look physically this way that can be in. And Paul says, that's a distortion of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And he says this, when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He corrects Peter to his face, and he corrects him in writing to the church, to the Galatian church. There's a real uh, level of discernment that Paul uses here because he believes Jesus and the gospel uh, are being distorted. So those are, those are the two, my, my sort of assessment of the two things, what I think is prohibited here and what Jesus says and what I think isn't. I want to talk just a few minutes about um, a few virtues that I think he's trying, what he's really trying to like implant in us and, and how he wants us to live. I think he wants us to be people who judge rightly, people who judge humbly, and people who judge justly, and he wants us to receive judgment from others with humility and openness, as though it's coming, when it comes from other believers, as though it's coming through, uh, from the Lord and from the Spirit. So let's talk about each of those things. Uh, judging rightly, um, t- two passages of Scripture that won't be on the screen, but in Hebrews 4.12, we're told that the Word of God, the Scriptures, judge the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And then in 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes that Scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. So I think the big picture here of judging rightly, uh, at, take all that we've heard about what it's not supposed to be, um, but what I think uh, we are being converted to, what we're being made to, is people whose judgments are rooted in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the one who judge the thoughts, are, are the words are uh, the word of God that judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And they are what we use to teach and rebuke and correct and to train in righteousness. So I think judging rightly means we're, our judgments are rooted in the scriptures. That's not the end of it because anybody can take the scriptures and misuse them and do the things that Jesus has clearly said you're not supposed to do. But I do think always function with humility um, and, and just... Working from Jesus' words here, I think that means it starts by recognizing that I, a lot of the time, have... I think it's interesting that Jesus issues a teaching like this um, out of a particular context of, of correcting someone about something in particular. Here's what I mean by that. He very broadly says, you have a board in your eye. Who's he talking to? And, and do I always have a board in my eye? I don't, I don't have all the answers to that. But I think the broadness of his teaching is meant to humble me to realize at any given moment I might be walking around with a board in my eye. So I should have that level of humility. And then if I'm going to move from that moment, if I think as Jesus instructed me to do, um, I have dealt with the board in my eye and I'm going to move from that space to actually helping my brother or sister with the speck in their eye, that I'm doing it for their sake. 
No, really. I'm doing it for their sake, not because it makes me feel better about me, any of those things that I put up on the screen. And even when I'm, when I'm um, making some sort of correction for the sake of the gospel, uh, if I'm being so bold as I don't, I don't know exactly how to, to, to sort of set myself against Jesus and say, is there a time for me to say, you blind guides, you hypocrites? But, but say that there is, even if there's that moment that I, that I feel like the gospel is at stake and I need to say, those people are, are blind guides. I'm not condemning those people uh, eternally. I am praying and hoping for their rescue along the way. So I think that's sort of the virtue of humility in this. I think he is wanting us to be people who judge justly. Uh, and so I want to show you a couple of short passages here. One is from the Old Testament law, and then one is uh, the writing of James in the New Testament. And I think the swing here is a way for us to see in the law that God originally provided what it looks like to judge justly, and then see how that comes to fruition by the Spirit for those of us who are in Christ. So in Leviticus 19, uh, the law says this, You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So in this part of the law, we're told to be just, we're told to be impartial, we're told to be truth-tellers and not liars. And we're told to be not self-seeking or self-soothing in the way that we deal with one another. So that's the law that Jesus, by the way, says, I came to fulfill this. And short-form explanation of that is he came to bring to life what God intended uh, in the law for all of us. And so I think James is describing what that looks like here when that comes to life. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. The wisdom that comes from heaven are these things, the law uh, fulfilled by Jesus and growing in us by the Spirit. That's the virtue of judging justly and rightly and humbly coming alive because of the Spirit. Um, and it's worth pointing out here, I think, uh, that the wisdom that comes from heaven is anything but indifferent to standing, standing idly by while people trade the goodness of God's way in for inferior lies of the world and, and become those people that James has already written about who wander away uh, who we are encouraged to, to help bring back into God's fold. Um, that's hard. Uh, there, there is a personal difficulty, I think, that we come upon with people that we care about, uh, that, that we struggle to cross certain lines to correct them because we want to be gentle with them. 
Uh, maybe because at times we fear a broken relationship if we go too far in that. This is a difficult road to walk, uh, for sure. But we have to remember um, that this is what the scriptures tell us to do. And if we refuse to do it, I think we're actually at risk of, um, number one, judging the scriptures and saying eh, the scriptures maybe aren't right in this case about how I'm supposed to handle this. And I think it's actually a form of judgment of the person that we're resisting uh, loving general correction with because um, often I think we're low-keying the situation because we're convinced that they won't hear the Spirit through us or they just can't change. And that's a judgment that we're rendering there that I'm not sure we're supposed to render. Um, I, there's, a, there's a pretty clear picture, I think, in the life of Jesus of, of how this is supposed to play out, how we're supposed to operate uh, and judge well and humbly and gently. And that's the story in John 8 of a woman caught in adultery. Uh, Jesus, in that story, utterly rejects religious condemnation. Um, he reveals the planks and the eyes of all the men who are standing around condemning this woman and ready to stone her to death. And then this happens at the end of that story. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. There's no condemnation here from Jesus. Uh, and frankly, there's that we see no sort of practical effort to convince her or to fix her. Um, but there is absolute clarity in what he says to her about the brokenness of the road that she's on and about the choice that she has before her, which is continue in a way that will destroy your soul or choose the way that leads to life. And I, th I think it's important to recognize here that Jesus knows that her rescue from stoning, though very important, is not the end of the rescue for her. That the real rescue for her is found in discovering the life that's really life, and that requires him to say, don't sin anymore. This way that you've been on is broken. Choose the other way. The last virtue, uh, and I'll be brief on this one, uh, that I think is introduced here is that we are supposed to be people who are capable of receiving judgment and correction from other believers, from other people who love us. Um, I think it's, uh, in the words of Jesus that we have here in Matthew chapter 7, I think just to kind of summarize, to come to this final point, we have a few things. We have an explicit instruction on how not to judge. We have an explicit, explicit instruction on how uh, to humbly judge rightly, he does say, once you have dealt with a plank in your eye, you can then deal with a speck in someone else's. And then we have what I think is an implicit virtue of being able, being willing to receive. And, and here's why I think that's absolutely present in this passage. Um, if he is telling his followers that there is a moment at which they can go help their brother or sister deal with a speck in their eye, then all of us are hearing that. And that means we have to be at times willing to stand still and let someone put their finger in our eye without responding by punching them in the face, right? And it, it's, 
It sounds very basic, but it's one of the things that I think breaks down in the life of the believer. This is a virtue that we have one of the hardest times really receiving and internalizing is this willingness to stand still when someone says, I think, I think there's something in, can, could you just, could you just, here, here, let me hold your eye. Oh, nobody wants that. But this is, this is, has to be part of what Jesus is saying happens in this particular text. Um, you can't just run around quoting the first four verses of, of Matthew 7 as though only other Christians have eye obstructions. Um, and then you have a right to be offended anytime someone says, hey, could I look closer? I think I see something there in your eye. Um, God intends for his people to humbly and to lovingly question each other about what we see in one another's eye and for them to help remove it. And this is, this is present throughout the scriptures. It's all over Proverbs, but two very clear ones. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but one who rejects a rebuke goes astray. Listen to advice, accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. I think we have to be humble enough here to realize that even when we mean well, even when we're working really hard for the kingdom, this is where I think it breaks down a lot of the time, is we're really engaged in something virtuous and something good for the kingdom. We're trying so hard in a difficult situation to love well and correct well and balance all of that. And someone comes in and says, hey, can I ask you about that? And our immediate response is, are you kidding me? Do you see what I'm doing here? And I think the words of Jesus just are encouraging us to be soft, to be tender, and to not be defensive. And if you really don't believe that person loves you, deal with that. But if you do, then be ready to receive. And you have a community of people around you who can do that. Are they doing that? That's a fair question to ask. If they're not, is it because they're not willing to do it? Is it because you're putting off the vibe, don't touch my eyeball, or even really look that close? These are questions that, that I think we need to ask. Are we ready and willing to hear the Lord when he speaks? He only has imperfect people, people who sometimes have logs and sometimes have specks in their eyes to come to you and point out what's, that, that's all there is. So if you're dismissing people because you know they have imperfections, there's no one left, and you're just shutting the door. So the encouragement, I think, from Jesus here is for us uh, to be tender and to be ready to receive what he has for us. Uh, the point of all of that, of us judging rightly and justly and humbly, is that we would be filled with the wisdom from above that is pure that is peaceable, gentle, that is willing to yield to one another, that is full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy so that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those of us who make peace. Let's pray. Jesus, as is uh, regularly the case, this is a hard word. Uh, it's a hard word for those of us who like to judge. I like to judge. I confess... Um, for any number of reasons that it is 
not difficult for me to look around and find fault with other people. And it's a hard word to be reminded that I'm usually in the wrong when my heart is not right and, and I move on that. It's also a hard word for us to realize we're all the people who have the planks in our eyes and the specks in our eyes. And the call here is for us to be humble enough to deal with that before you, to allow you to deal with us and correct us, and to allow you to use your church to do that. So would you make us those people, not uh, so that we can take pride in how we do that, but so that we can be filled with the wisdom that's from above and so that we can know you, Jesus, more clearly and make you known more clearly to the world around us. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.